Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. morning we are stepping into a new series uh, called Citizen and uh, to give you just a little bit of the background um, this morning I'm going to kind of talk through and kind of look at in in kind of a big picture uh, get kind of an understanding of what the kingdom of God is Um, one of the things that I guess I and a a number of us have been uh, wrestling with lately and even just God has placed in front of us is how, how we, I think, in general, not just our church, but in general, we, we don't live in a manner that looks like we understand the kingdom of God and uh, what, what that means and what that looks like. In fact, um, it's interesting because uh, looking at the growth or decline of Christianity in our country, um, Pew Research has a, a, a handful of statistics, and and um, <clears throat> it's interesting because if you if you look over the last couple generations, um, what you find is that there are less and less people, percentages of our population of the American population, um, claiming to be Christians. Uh, in fact, the question was asked, and and we have studies and things from from years back. Uh, of the percent of adults who identify themselves as Christians um, generationally. And in the silent generation, which is those people born between 1928 and 1945, um, 84% of those people would identify themselves as Christian. Uh, The next generation after that is the baby boomers, and those are those born between 46 and 64, and 76% of that generation would identify themselves as Christians. Then you get to Generation X, which is 1965 to 1980, 67% would identify themselves as Christian. Then you get to the millennials who are technically born between 1981 and 96, and that drops down to 49% identify themselves as Christian. Um, So it's interesting to see during those years and those generations, how each generation, there is a smaller percentage of Americans within, within that, that description that would identify themselves as Christians. Uh, another question which was kind of uh, indicated some, some uh, interesting things is the percentage of adults who attend religious services, that being once or more a month. And again, in the silent generation, 61% said that they would attend a religious service once or more a month. The baby boomers, 49%. Gen X was 46%. And the millennials say that they, as a percentage of adults, say that they attend a religious service uh, once or more a month. That is at 35%. And uh, Gallup did a, did a study uh, on morality in 2017 and uh, it, was, it was the idea of, of, of the percentage of Americans, again, this isn't specifically uh, aimed toward church or unchurch, this is just Americans who believe that the percentage that believe these things are okay, or are, are okay with that or permissible or whatnot. 
And so it's interesting because 91% of Americans uh, don't have any issue with divorce. Um, 70% of Americans uh, believe that unmarried sex is okay, no big deal. Uh, and these are all at, at kind of a high point of their approval ratings. 57% uh, believe that doctor-assisted suicide is all right. Uh, and then the last one is only 36%, which sounds like not that bad, but 36% of Americans believe that pornography is okay. Like, I feel like it's the lowest percentage, but it might be one of the most startling statistics. Uh, so, so what we see, again, as we look at, uh, at least just at Americans, every successive generation has been less church since the 1930s. Where in the 1930s, there was about 70% of people of the population claimed that they went to church. In 2020, there's 47%. And again, um, that would include religious services. That would include those who go once a month. That would include those who consider a church theirs, meaning they go maybe at Christmas and Easter. So, so we've seen a significant drop of church to America. And so it seems like the church in America has consistently fallen behind its primary mission which is the growth of the gospel and God's kingdom. And so kind of what the church has been doing and how the church has been doing it doesn't look like it's a prevailing church. And when you, when you look at what, what Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples about how, uh, how that he will build his church on the identity and the work of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, it, it feels a little bit like there's some gates that are prevailing um, as we look at the successive generations. And I, I believe that this has been happening for a lot of reasons, but, but I think in a large part, I think it has to do that, that we've forgotten where we're from and, and where we belong. And, and, so, and so really this morning, um, as we get into this idea of the kingdom of God and what does that look like, I wanna kind of, have almost a, uh, an introduction, an overview of really what is this kingdom of God that Jesus talks about and we see in the Bible so prevalently, yet we seem so confused about what that is. And, and really, human history is a, a history of God's kingdom. Throughout the biblical witness, God has always had a people that he's called out and, and that he has, has consistently called out of the world citizenship into a, a heavenly citizenship. When you look at Adam and Eve, uh, the tragedy that happened there was they gave birth to a rival kingdom to God's kingdom. That God established Eden and, and, and placed everything in it. And what happened was there was a rival kingdom that was born out of that. And then if you, if you go to Genesis chapter 12, you see in Abraham, there was a revived kingdom. That God said, no, the kingdom isn't over. I'm reviving the kingdom through you. And, 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 and then you see in Moses with the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt and, and, and there, was this, there was this rescued kingdom at that point. And then in David, God calls David and he makes a covenant with a forever kingdom. He says that you, there will never cease to be 
one of your lines sitting on, on the throne. And then in Jesus, there is a revealed kingdom. And consistent with every movement, there's this outward and expansion mission that God has his people and the kingdom on. Again, with Adam and Eve, the initial calling was for them to grow Eden, to expand it throughout the world. Eden was in a, a, a particular place, but what God did was he said, I want you to grow this out, and I want the earth to benefit from the outward growth of Eden. And then in, in Abraham, he said that through you, all nations will be blessed, that you will be the conduit of God's blessing to all nations. And then in David, God promises that eventually he will bring, bring peace to the entire earth. And then in Jesus, we see that every tribe in every nation will hear and know that Jesus Christ is Lord, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so we have this thematic thing going on in Scripture about the kingdom of God and what's happening. But really, what is the kingdom of God? What does it look like? And, and so it's interesting that there's a lot of different ideas kind of swimming around in church circles and in Christian circles about what the kingdom of God is. One, one possibility that, that people have presented is that the kingdom of God is a place that you go when you die. And that's, that's partially true. I mean, yes, that, that we are in God's kingdom if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus and, 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 and we die and we, we go and we spend eternity with him and his kingdom. And that's part of it, but that's not quite the kingdom of God. Others define the kingdom as the church, that it's synonymous, that the church of God is no different than the kingdom of God, that they are one and the same, which really doesn't seem to be the case according to the, the, the picture of, of, that scripture paints. Because in, in the Old Testament, Israel was not the kingdom of God. Israel was the conduit of the kingdom of God. And so I, I, I'm not sure the church is exactly the kingdom of God. It may be the conduit, but not the kingdom itself. Some, some define the kingdom of God simply as ethics. <clears throat> um, the, the, the statement that's, that's made about the kingdom of God from an ethical standpoint is that humankind builds the kingdom of God as it works for the ideal social order and endeavors to solve the problems of poverty, sickness, labor relations, social inequalities, and race relations. That it is primarily ethics in how people and groups are treated. And so that seems to be lacking something of the urgency and the significance of the kingdom that Jesus talks about. And I think the one that maybe I'm most familiar with and that maybe we in, in maybe our context would be that the kingdom of God is kind of a euphemism for the rule of God in, in my heart. That, 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 the, that the kingdom of God really, it, it really boils down to uh, the rule of God in your heart, in my heart, and, and that's kind of how it works. And again, there's some truth to that, but that's not exactly the kingdom of God. See, all of these understandings and definitions of the kingdom of God suffer from reductionism, which is taking part of the whole and placing it at the center and saying that it is only about this. And so none of these really contain what the kingdom of God is. And so we, have, we wanna go to the witness of scripture to begin to understand what the kingdom of God is. And so Jesus himself talks a lot about the kingdom. In Mark chapter one, as we've, as we've studied Mark, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, and this is after Jesus comes out of the wilderness, 
of being tempted and John the Baptist is arrested. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later, uh, when Jesus asks his disciples who people are saying that Jesus is, what, is, what, is, what are the rumors out there? What are people saying about Jesus? And, and in Matthew, he has uh, kind of a, a larger uh, a version of this than Mark. And in, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples and, and, and Peter responds, it says, and Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says to Peter <clears throat> that upon that, that identity, the identity of Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior and king, that's, that's the foundation that the church will be built on. And he says that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. That that, 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 that that news, that message, that foundation will be spread all out, all over. And what's interesting is then he says to Peter, and, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the keys to the kingdom of heaven have been given to the church. So the church and the kingdom aren't the same thing, but the church has the keys to the kingdom. And you think about that, when you give someone keys to something, you are entrusting them with whatever the value is and the use of that thing is. Like when, you know, you, you maybe have one of your kids gets their license, and if you have more than one car, and maybe one car that's a little nicer, one car that, well, it, it's running, I mean, who, which keys do you give to your child at that point? Probably the ones that is, is gonna run, but you're not that concerned about. And, and so Jesus, yet Jesus says to, to, to Peter, he says, I'm giving the church the keys to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is really significant. The most, probably the most significant keys that you can get. And so really, Jesus, Jesus says, he says then later, he says, and, and after he's gonna suffer, he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when a believer speaks words on the bedrock of Jesus' identity at the very center, they're using the keys of the kingdom to open up the kingdom around them and in the lives of people. They're bringing the kingdom here. When we function in the character of Jesus and we speak in the name of Jesus, we are opening up the doors to the kingdom all around us. Later in uh, John chapter 18, uh, John writes about the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And uh, it says this in, in verse 33, it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus makes a statement there that the kingdom of God has not originated, does not have its roots, is not planted in the kingdom of man. That it is a much larger thing and it expands over all the kingdoms of humanity, but it is much greater than that and it is not based in this place. And then later, the Apostle Paul actually talks about the kingdom and the, the, the consequences of the kingdom. He says in Ephesians chapter two, verse 18, he says, for through him, Jesus, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. Paul's using nationality language in that. He's talking about citizenship. He's talking about aliens and strangers. He says, you are citizens of this kingdom that God has developed. In Philippians 3, in verse 20, he says the same thing. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him to, even, him even to subject all things to himself. When you subject all things to yourself, that is a royal, kingly reference. No one but a king or a monarch subjects all things to himself. It has to be a person who has complete authority over everything. And Paul says that Jesus is not only savior, but that he has subjected everything to himself. And so to give us kind of a, uh, maybe a, a simple way of remembering what the kingdom of God is, maybe a, a way to remember that and kind of work with that is, is I would suggest this, that the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. See, a true kingdom consists of a king, a people, and it exists in a place where that rule can happen. So the kingdom of God isn't this like, like, like confusing or, or this, this blurry thing that there is a king, King Jesus, God is king over a people who are citizens of that kingdom and that kingdom has a place. And frankly, that place is wherever those people are. And, and, so, and so God is king, yet we tend to gravitate toward the idea of God as friend or God as father. That's kind of our, our bent. That's kind of our preference. We talk a lot about God as friend or our, or our father. However, kingship is actually the root metaphor for the Bible's description of God. The Bible describes God as king more than any other way that it describes God. And in the Gospels, we see this clearly played out. In fact, in Matthew, if you, if you pay attention, what you'll see is that Matthew looks at the place of the kingdom, where the kingdom is. And in Mark, you actually see kind of thematically the king's authority or the power of the king. 
In Luke, Luke talks a whole bunch about the people who will inherit the kingdom. He talks about the weak and the poor and the neglected and the unexpected. And then finally in the Gospel of John, John presents the kingdom as kind of kingdom life, life in the kingdom, what it looks like to live abundantly in the kingdom of God in what it takes. And all the Gospels together, they present the kingdom realized through the cross. The cross lives on in the people of God and in the places where they gather together when they take up their crosses and follow Jesus, that is where the kingdom of God is. And I want you to catch that, that the kingdom of God, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, what, we're, what we need to understand is that the kingdom of God is wherever the people of God are together or separated. And, and, and that is where the kingdom of God exists. And the cross is crucial because the kingdom of God is seen where we take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. And so the kingdom has been the kingdom of God has been established through the cross of Christ, which which Jesus' reign is irreversibly fixed on earth as it is in heaven. That Jesus is king and his kingdom is here and it has been fixed and we cannot reverse this. It will not change or go back that Jesus is king on earth as he is in heaven and we just don't see that in its totality right now. And, and, and what's interesting at the end of John in, in, in chapter 19, verse 20, uh, John records the sign that was placed over, at the, uh, over Jesus on the cross. And it's interesting because in John's gospel, it says that it was written in Aramaic, and it was written in Latin, and it was let, written in Greek. Those were the three languages that, that, at least according to the Roman Empire, were the three languages that represented the entire world, known world that if you were a person in the known world, you would speak one of those languages. And John says that written on the plaque above Jesus on the cross, written in the language of the whole world, read Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And even though it wasn't meant this way, it was an announcement to the whole known world that the king had arrived and his kingdom was here. And so in the kingdom, the risen King Jesus grants power to his people and they spread the good news of the king to every place because the kingdom of God is God's power, the king's power, the king's people in the king's place. It's kind of interesting to see how Paul in a couple more well-known passages in his letters that are actually kind of written as hymns looks at the extent of Christ's kingship and the means by which he is declared king. In Colossians 1, starting in chapter 15, Paul writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
He's saying that not only things that you see, but that which you don't see, human beings, spiritual beings, all of those things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That, that Paul basically says this is the extent of the kingship of Jesus. There is no end, there is no, there is no boundary of his kingship. And then in Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul again talks about the means of Jesus' kingship. And, and, and he says, he says in, in Philippians chapter two, he says, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are kingly descriptions of the response of those on the earth and in heaven and everywhere else. There's a, there's a picture uh, of 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 Jesus and what our possible response can be to him at the end of the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 23. And Luke writes, and he, and he, and he walks through the final moments of, of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so what, what we see in Luke chapter 23 is, is, if you can picture this with me, is a, a dark hill and you've got three crosses and you have Jesus in the middle cross and two criminals being crucified on either side of Jesus. In Luke 20, 23, he writes, he says, one of the criminals who were hanged rallied against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In your mind, if you can picture that, 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 that criminal on the one side of Jesus says to Jesus, I've heard about you. I've heard you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. So, so if you are, then save yourself and save me. What he wanted from Jesus, and we need to recognize this, what that, that criminal wanted was he wanted Jesus to bring him off the cross and set him free. But that's all he wanted. He didn't want anything else. He just simply wanted Jesus to get him out of the mess he was in. So he saw Jesus as a savior in that moment who would save him from the predicament that he was in. But then Luke goes on and says, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so then there's this guy on the other side who hears this guy say, Jesus, I want you to get me off of the cross. 
if you really are who you say you are, then get me down from here. So this other criminal on the other side, and you've gotta, we've gotta get that picture because these are three men who are being crucified on a cross. They can't breathe very well. They can't speak well, but here's a conversation going on that's compelling them to either escape or be saved. And so he says, it says that he kind of rebuked the, the other one and he said, look, we're getting what we deserve. This guy didn't do anything wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and notice what he asks. He says, can you remember me in your kingdom? Notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't say, get me out of this situation. He doesn't say, save me, get me off of this cross. Isn't it interesting that as he's looking at Jesus, he does not ask for rescue from the situation that he's in. But he's, all he asks is, he says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, if I'm that guy, I'm kind of thinking, I asked for too little. <laughs> Maybe I should up my ask. <laughs> but it's interesting. So, so the one criminal on the one side viewed the Messiah as, a, as kind of a savior, but not a king. Not someone that he would give his loyalty to. Just someone who could get him out of a particular predicament and then go on his way. But the other one said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He saw the Messiah, the Christ, on the cross in that moment as something bigger than what was revealed to his eyes. He recognized the king, that that king had power, but it was a paradoxical power, one of suffering and weakness, but somehow that would translate into a kingdom. You see, the kingdom is not simply social ethics or heaven or the church or God's sovereignty or in my heart. The kingdom is much, much larger. The kingdom concerns the king, his people, and the place where they live and function. And at the center of his kingdom plans stands a wooden cross covered in blood. You know, it's interesting when we think of kingdoms and we think of maybe films that we've seen about kingdoms and kings where a monarchy is the central point of the story. And typically you have some grand area that people gather, a courtyard. And in that courtyard typically is some kind of symbol that shows the kingdom's power and the strength and their authority and their rule. Sometimes it's a, it, we, we see it in literature. Sometimes it's a, 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 a grand tree. Sometimes it's, it's a fountain. Sometimes it's a statue. But it can be all of these different things, and it symbolizes the, the nature of that kingdom. But in the grand courtyard of the kingdom of God stands that, a cross that represents the power and the authority and the character of the kingdom of God. You cannot separate the kingdom of God from the cross. The cross tells us the character of the kingdom. It defines who we are called to be and what kind of citizens we are. 
When Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand, and then he says, in order to follow me, you deny yourself and take up your cross, there is a forever link between the kingdom of God, our citizenship, and the cross, and the carrying of the cross. And, and so there's, I think there's a challenge to this kingdom. I think there's a challenge to us, first as human beings, but secondly as Americans. I think we struggle with this kingdom idea. You see, as human beings, we hold our ideologies very ravenously. Whatever, whatever you believe about functioning of life and flourishing and the nature of authority and government and philosophy and all of those things, whatever you believe, it is in our nature to protect what we hold dear. And I want you to hear this because this is really important. When it comes to God's kingdom, we are prone to idolatry with our ideology. When it comes to God's kingdom, we are prone to idolatry with our ideology. And this has happened with every people throughout history, no matter what or who they are. Boiling it down to something as simple as political leanings, the left has done it and the right has done it. Mix the kingdom of God with their ideologies raising that to a place of significance. We cannot wed the kingdom of God with an ideology which has been one of the cores of sin since the fall. And again, this is not limited to one person or tribe or nation over another. It is just who we are as human beings and we struggle to truly lay down our lives, surrender, and submit to a king without bringing along our agendas and our best thinking and our desires. And so here's what I think is the challenge for us, maybe in, maybe in two things that may be simplified. The challenge of the kingdom of God for us exists because number one, I think we are an advantaged people. We are an advantaged people. I think because of our heritage, because of what we've grown up in, and I'm really thankful for the heritage that I have in America. However, because of our heritage, we believe that a favored church is normative. We believe it's normal for the church to be supported and given freedom by a government which actually goes against what Jesus says that we will encounter as those who follow Jesus. Jesus says, a servant is not better, greater than his master. And so if, if the master has suffered, so will the servant. Jesus says, you will suffer for my sake because I suffered for my sake. But because of our heritage, we believe that, that a church that is favored is the norm in reality, where it's actually not and I think we're, we're advantaged, but we also are, again, disadvantaged because of our bias toward a democratic form of government, which a democratic form of government, I think, is great as far as governments go. 
But you know what a democratic form of government is not great when it comes to? The kingdom of God. Yet we tend to be very democratic in our interaction with God. And maybe, maybe your initial reaction is, no, I'm not. When was the last time you didn't argue with God when there was something hard he asked you to do? <laughs> That's being democratic with God. <laughs> if, if we really saw God, if we really saw Jesus as king, and we understood what kingship meant, living in the kingdom of God, as a citizen in a kingdom, you do what the king says. And if you don't, there are very significant consequences. You don't make deals with kings <laughs> as their subjects. The only way you make a deal with a king in a kingdom is if you are a king from another kingdom. And so at best, we see ourselves as kings equal to God and equal to Jesus that we will make deals. And, and, and so, so I, I, there's this struggle that we have because we don't recognize nor do we know how to honor King Jesus. It's a struggle with the power of the king. Second thing is this. We are a national or a global people. By our nature, by the nature of, of who we are, we primarily see ourselves through the lens of geopolitics. We see ourselves through boundaries, we see ourselves through political power reinforced or undermined by geographical arrangements. And we, we know that we are so deep into this because we talk, about, we talk about these things. We talk about borders. We talk about not having borders. We talk about people from different countries. We talk about people from different ethnicities. We talk about people from different places that inhabit different philosophies and different ideologies. We are... We are we are very much a people who see others through geopolitics. Others are seen through this lens. And I think this, this hits our kingdom vision because we don't really see people through the lens of the kingdom of God as our default. I think our belief in the global family of God falls short of actions. We talk about how we believe that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, and it, as, as, as Scripture says, that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down between us, and that we are one family, but are we really one family with, with those in other parts of the world who call Jesus Savior? Because we sure don't live in a way that that's, that seems to be the case. And again, it's, it's part of our nature to be like that. I mean, Israel struggled with that. If Israel, who, who, God, who God called out to himself and said, you will do this and I will be your God, and they had a hard time being the conduit of blessing for other nations because they, they lived in a geopolitical view, I'm sure we struggle with that. If Israel struggled with recognizing God as king. When they said, God, we wanna be like the other nations, our ideology is that we want a human king, and God said, okay, I'll give you a human king, but you won't like what happens. 
And, and so if Israel struggled with that, of course we'll struggle with that. Our earthly citizenship by nature competes with our kingdom citizenship. And if there is not tension between your earthly citizenship and your kingdom citizenship, then there's something wrong with your kingdom citizenship. Because there is no nation, there's no citizenship in the history of the world that will not be overcome and bow down to the kingdom of God. And there is no kingdom, there's no citizenship that actually recognizes Jesus as king. Some recognize Jesus as helper. Some recognize Jesus as, as, as something or someone who can be beneficial, just like the criminal on the cross who said, hey, if you're really the Christ, save me. But there's no nation that sees Jesus as king. And this has to do with the king's people and the king's place. I think it could be easy for us to dismiss some of these things and say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm fine. I don't think what you're describing describes me. And it, and it does maybe feel because of all of the talk and the events going on around us, it could feel like it's jumping onto a bandwagon or, or becoming woke or, or maybe even thinking that we're being deceived into, into believing something that will kind of chip away at, at who we are. And yeah, it is chipping away at who we are, but, but it not in a bad way, in a good way. We might be tempted to dismiss much of this, easily justifying the strong feelings that we have. And it is true that, that we're all prone to blindness. I am, you are. And, and it does seem, could seem a little suspect with all of the cultural unrest right now and the redefining of things and with everyone jockeying for their most advantageous position that, you know, maybe we should be careful about this. But here's the thing. What God has been doing with me as of late is I've been wrestling with God and I've come to a place of seeing that Preaching the kingdom was a primary reason that Jesus was crucified. And, and, and the reality is this, that when we start to really look at ourselves in light of the kingdom and King Jesus, whoever's bringing that message is going to be subject to crucifixion. And that we ourselves, when we start to think about Jesus as king and being in the kingdom of God, we will have a choice to make to crucify our own desires, our own flesh, so that we can be true citizens of God's kingdom. And here's what I wanna ask you this morning. Here's what I wanna ask you to consider and think through this next week. From what you know about kings and kingdoms and from what the Bible says about who we are and how we are to live, are you really treating Jesus as king in your thoughts and your behaviors? Are you treating Jesus as king with what you have and what you do? It's interesting, I was having a conversation not long ago 
about when we tend to kneel. And I was thinking about that. I've, I've knelt before Jesus before, but you know when I kneel before Jesus? It's when I am overwhelmed with emotion about his goodness or my unworthiness. But you know when people kneel for a king? It's not when they feel like kneeling. It's when he is present. And I don't think we are in a posture of kneeling very often because Jesus is always with us. And I think we only kneel occasionally, which I think is reflective of how we see Jesus. And so that's what I would ask you to wrestle with this week. Do you really treat Jesus as king and does your life and choices and behavior and activities reflect that? I believe that we are grateful that Jesus has saved us from our sin, but I think it's time to recognize him as king and learn how to live our lives around that truth. I invite the worship team to come back up and we're gonna celebrate and remember communion together this morning. As we think about communion, it's that which Jesus has called us to remember and celebrate and participate together with. In remembering his sacrifice, his death on a cross. And I wanna read to you how he describes it in Luke chapter 22. How Luke describes that time in the upper room where Jesus instituted communion. And I think hopefully you'll catch what's going on here. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Notice that in Luke's retelling of the upper room and the first communion ever, he talks about Jesus and how Jesus forever linked the kingdom of God and the cross. The kingdom of God has a cross as its central symbol because it is the cross that defines the character of the kingdom and it is the cross that defines our discipleship and our citizenship within that kingdom. And so as the band plays at your own pace, as you pray and seek God this morning, go ahead and take the bread and the juice when you feel ready to, as the band plays and we worship together. And as you think about the cross and the kingdom, and this reminds you of your citizenship. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done, and we thank you that you are king.
God, I pray that we wouldn't dismiss this this morning, but God, that we would be thoughtful and open up ourselves to the searching of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.